Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Quartz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current Chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. All right, good afternoon and happy new year, Dr. Johnson. Happy new year, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, so our discussion for today uh, is the stats, uh, are the stats that are important in a neurosurgery uh, residency application um, and what data we have uh, that shows which ones are important uh, as well as maybe some of the things that we don't have a lot of good data on. No guests today, so we'll, we'll, we're just going to cover it ourselves. And so just to start, I guess, if you want to give an overview, um, I know you guys did something similar for your YNC webinar series. And uh, I don't know if you wanted to start us off by giving an overview on what, why this is important. Um, I mean, obviously, neurosurgery is competitive, um, as well as what you think is important, uh, which factors um, are, are weighted heavily and both for you specifically as being part of the evaluation process, as well as um, things that uh, you and your colleagues discuss potentially um, as being deterministic of someone's candidacy for neurosurgery. Yeah, I know. Happy to walk through a lot of those things. So I think, you know, what's important here is that um, is that what neurosurgeons are generally looking for in trainees and what neurosurgery as a field is looking for in neurosurgeons or people that are smart, hardworking, love the field, therefore they'll be dedicated to the field, um, will be dedicated to lifelong learning because the field is ever evolving as medicine evolves, technology evolves, and um, are good people who are going to be focused on patient care and, um, and good patient outcomes, et cetera. So I think the whole process of selecting residents is really focused on determining the people that will have these traits that will become successful neurosurgeons. And that's a little bit in, you know, obvious, but, but I do think it's worth saying that um, the, the major, majority of people that are choosing residents are really looking for traits they think are going to make good neurosurgeons. Mm-hmm. Um, again, very obvious, but worth stating up front that there's no like magical, you know, um, thing that anyone's looking for. It's just, everybody's trying to filter through applicants, um, as best they can, um, who think they'll make good residents and good future neurosurgeons. And, um, so this is where the field has kind of evolved to valuing certain metrics for sub-selecting people that are going to be good neurosurgeons and, and it may be somewhat flawed metrics, but they're metrics that people are looking for nonetheless. Um, so I wanted to start with just, you know, for someone who may not be super familiar and I apologize for those who I may bore with this, like what does neurosurgery training entail? Because it does kind of help to know what you may be getting into if you're not familiar with that. They could skip ahead. Um, yeah. So, uh, so more or less neurosurgery uh, is a training program to take care of the nervous system, which is, uh, includes the brain, spine, spinal cord, and peripheral nerves. The um, training 
is focused on surgery, but also is important to be able to diagnose and manage non-surgical neurological diseases um, that fall within our purview, as well as to have good judgment about when to do surgery. Um, that is a background. So the, usually the way people get through neurosurgery is that first, of course, you go to medical school. And that's a whole other topic we've spent podcasts on discussing the various ways people can get through various styles of medical school and into neurosurgical training in the USA. Um, but that said, you have to go through some form of medical school and be certified as a graduate of a medical school to become a neurosurgery resident. Um, the uh, neurosurgery residency training is in the United States is seven years in length, uh, the standard length of it. Usually there's a junior segment of your neurosurgery training, which is years one through three typically, which are intensive uh, clinical years. There's often a one to two year, either research or surgical or specialty elective type focus that you can have in your middle years. And then usually your sixth and seventh year training are intensive operative years um, and your seventh year being called your chief year. Once you're done with training, then you look for either fellowship positions if you want to subspecialize and get more advanced training in a certain subspecialty uh, in a postgraduate year, or you move on to a job. So that's how this goes. Um, so that's what is expected of the neurosurgery trainee. And that's what from the person who's selecting neurosurgery residents, you have to find someone who's going to excel and that through that pathway and then still like neurosurgery enough to want to do it when they graduate. And, uh, and, and obviously we want to do the best we can to match people in neurosurgery that will ultimately stay in neurosurgery, both for the program's sake, as well as for the applicant's sake. Um, so there, that's the background of how we go through the match process of neurosurgery. As far as metrics that are important to match. Um, so there's a few basic metrics you should understand. One is that there's two USMLE board scores that you typically have when you're going through the interview and match process. Um, one Step one and step two is USMLE board score, step one and two. Uh, and there's also a step CK, where I believe is clinical knowledge, and then there's a clinical CS, clinical skill. And my understanding is that as of right now, the clinical skill, which is like an in-person exam of a mock patient, is suspended due to COVID but may return. Um, generally speaking, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but step one and step two CK are generally, but not always in the books when you apply to neurosurgery. Is that, is that still the case? Step one certainly is. Um, yeah. I mean, most schools, they kind of require you to have it done by the end of third year. And then step right. two is kind of hit or miss. Uh, there's actually more people that don't have step two than I had realized yeah. initially um, before they apply. Um, but that might change as uh, step one goes pass fail, which we might discuss later. Yeah, I've seen um, a mixture as well. I certainly took it before, um, but I guess someone that has like through the roof step one score that doesn't want to have like a mediocre step two score, I can understand why you wouldn't want to do it. I, I had like mm -hmm. good above average, but not you know spectacular on either, but they were both good. Right. The second thing you definitely need to have is good grades and or class rank. And this is all over the board. And in some places are just pass fail medical schools. Some places don't rank people. There's like, seems to be, we'll talk about in the data, a predilection for people that get AOA rank, um, uh, which is kind of like someone that you're designated as being an outstanding person in your medical school and somewhat vague criteria in, in large part is my understanding. 
Um, so these types of class rank signifiers tend to help you do well if you're in upper echelons of your medical school, even if you're in a class fail, a pass fail type situation in your school. Um, the next thing that is becoming more and more important, I believe in large part because there's so many different medical schools that do their grades and class ranks and then now pass fail on uh, step one. Um, there's so many variables that aren't, aren't um, standardized that research publications are becoming more and more important, it seems, based on the data. And we'll talk about some of that shortly. Um, so that's something else to keep in mind. And then finally, sub-internships. So we've had previous discussions about what those are, but as a summary, sub-internship is a, um, a month typically, sometimes two weeks on a neurosurgery service. Um, typically you have one at your home institution if your home medical school has a residency program. And then usually two at other institutions where you spend a month on a neurosurgery service at another institution, residency program. And from that experience, you then get letters of recommendation, typically from either the chair or the program director at those programs, which go into your application for neurosurgery match. Um, I may punt it over to you since you are probably more up to date than I am on the neurosurgery match process as far as what are the systems that you need to enter all this information in and, uh, and then disperse it to the programs. I'm not sure if you may want to give everyone an overview of how that works these days. Yeah, so there are a few things that um, uh, I can add. So first, yeah, in terms of the actual process for the way that all of this thing, all of these things come into play, as you alluded to, uh, you 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 take your step one and two exams. You get your boards, uh, your uh, your classes done, and your, your clinical rotations in third and fourth year, and then um, in the fall of your fourth year, typically, uh, at least in the U.S. system, um, is when you uh, will begin applying to programs that actually opens in the summer is when you can start uploading things. And then mm -hmm. it goes live for programs to see them um, typically in September, but because uh, of COVID it was in October this year. Um, and then there's a um, kind of a fight for interviews, um, which is actually kind of a cutthroat process in its own right, where um, programs will send interview invites to uh, applicants. Typically, you know, I'm sure you can speak to this as well, but kind of in the 30 to 40 range for one to three spots. And those usually felt very quickly. And so you have to have your phone with you um, right. at all times for those interview invites. Um, and then once you go through those interviews, um, you rank those programs. You can actually rank as many programs as you want, but no one's going to rank you unless they interview you. Right. Um, and, and once you uh, rank those programs, typically the best advice is the ones you want to go to, to the ones you don't want to go to, kind of maybe mixed in with places you feel uh, you have the best chance at, um, then those two, uh, and then the programs rank you and then the, the match, the, the match happens in, in March is when you learn where you end up and you're bound by that, uh, by contract, uh, to start July 1st of the, that year. So that's the general overview. That's all through what's called the electronic residency application service or ERAS, uh, ERAS is what some people call it. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, the, some of the technical details where we're, we get all this data from, um, there are three buckets where this kind of comes from. So the national resident matching program, which hosts ERAS, um, and is uh, a combination of, um, the double AMC and other organizations, they put this on, um, they publish data, um, every year 
based on, you know, how many applicants were to different programs, how many positions there are, et cetera. Um, and then biannually, they publish what's called the charting outcomes in the match, which is a more nuanced look at, you know, data trends um, for both matched and unmatched applicants. Um, and in recent years, they've done that in three versions. They do it for USMD seniors. Um, uh, they do it for uh, uh, international medical grads or IMGs, which is broken down into non-US and US applicants um, by, based by citizenship and then osteopathic um, applicants. And they have different data for each one of those. And then the second publication that they come out with is, is what's called the program director survey which is a survey of the program directors that uh, are in a particular field. And then uh, however many respond to that, they get data and rank certain things in two ways based off their importance, as well as how often a certain factor is noted to be important. And so things like step one are commonly both rated highly as well as oftenly rated or often rated. Uh, so those, that's the first thing. The second bucket is the, uh, peer-reviewed literature. Um, you know, there's literature in the neurosurgery uh, publication world, as well as in the academic medicine world that talks about some of these things that the NRMP does, but also tries to add some kind of statistical significance to the data. Um, you know, does their own surveys of their students and program directors, et cetera. And then the last is um, probably the lowest quality, but um, sometimes informs our decisions the most, which is anecdotal and advising resources that we come across um, based on particular experiences in different programs or uh, a, a mentor and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And all of that highlights kind of how all this data really comes together. And there's really, there's really two big, two, this can be di divided in two ways. The first is, you know, your academic performance, and that includes everything that you had described in terms of your boards and your grades and kind of AOA status and then all the non-academic stuff that's kind of harder to delineate from a statistical standpoint. Things like um, letters of recommendation, where you get them, who you know in the field, how well you did in interviews, uh, that sort of thing. And so that's kind of how uh, I've had it broken down to me. And a lot of this stuff is uh, found on the nursesurgerymatch.org website. Uh, I know that is fostered by you guys in the YNC and kind of goes down through all of the different um, subheadings of, you know, factors that are related to the neurosurgery match. There's uh, an innumerable amount of information that you can, you know, both submit and glean from the entire process. And I think some of the statistics are quite helpful, um, but they're certainly not comprehensive because there's a, like, like we talked about, there's a lot of non-quantified parts of this, like, how good is a letter of recommendation? There's no grading scale for that. Um, when you see someone perform on a rotation with your own eyes, how likable are they? How hard do they work? How honest are they? I mean, there's no, literally no, there's no metrics for this really, other than trying to put that into a letter of recommendation. And, and even that's imperfect. So, so you have to take some of these things with a grain of salt that all these things are mixed into the decision of how to rank someone. Not all of them we have statistics for, but we can go over what we do know, statistically speaking, and then kind of talk about some of the less quantifiable um, characteristics that make one you know, likely to match in, in our anecdotal <laughs> minds. You right. Know? right. Um, so please fill in any gaps that I have, but this is my interpretation of the data. So what I've done is I've gone back and looked through the national 
our resident match program in RMP results for our US seniors applying to neurosurgery. And they have a nice data that we can link um, where they go over like the statistics from, from many years prior uh, to now. Uh, but my most up-to-date data is from 2020. I can kind of walk everyone through some of the things that you should know about how many people match in neurosurgery that are interested, how many people don't, and, and some of where they come from. And then some of the factors that seem to be quite important for matching, and then some that are less important. Um, and we can kind of go from there. So my first, my first thought would be um, for US match in 2020, the number of positions available um, for US seniors total in the country was 232. So those were the total number of positions available in the match for neurosurgery in 2020. It's been relatively stable for the past few years, but slowly going up. For instance, 2016, it's 216 positions. Um, the percent of US, senior, US seniors who applied for the match and actually successfully matched was 74% in year 2000. That has ranged from 2016 to the year 2000 from a low of, um, actually 74% is the low. 2018, 90% of people who applied, US seniors matched. Um, so it, it varies somewhat, um, and I think I think it doesn't seem to be like a consistent. It seems to be consistently between about seventy-five and ninety percent, but but varies quite a bit year to year. Um, how many positions did not fill last year, uh, and that was zero. And between two thousand sixteen and twenty twenty, um, one zero or two are the numbers that didn't fill. So not very many positions did not match. Um, the number of U.S. seniors who applied and did not match last year was 70. Um, and that has varied quite a bit as well. For instance, 2017, there was only 20 unmatched US seniors, whereas 2020, there was 70. In 2019, there was 52. So seems to be some variability on how competitive it is year to year um, and how many, what percentage of US seniors end up matching versus not matching. So there's a little bit of a roll of the dice there, it seems to me. Um, so there's a few other things that they publish, which are quantifiable data about what is in someone's NRMP data set that seems to predict that they match or not, okay? So for example, there's a series of measures that they quantify for us and then categorize people based on whether they matched or unmatched. For example, the measures are that they tend to quantify for us in this statistics set is the mean number of contiguous ranked pro, you know, ranks. So how many people, how many programs did the applicant rank? Um, so for the people that matched, that number is 15.8. And the people that did not match, the number is 10. So generally speaking, people that rank more programs match. Not surprising, but certainly notable. Um, Which is kind of a reflection of how many interviews you had. Exactly. So we'll find out later that, what really seems to, one of the main things that seems to matter is that how many places you interview at. Um, so that will influence how many times you, how much you rank. Um, there is seem to be a little bit of a skew towards higher board scores in the people that matched. 248 for USMLE step one versus 241, but not huge. Step two doesn't seem to matter as much. 252 versus 248, but again, not, not that big a disparity on either one, honestly. Um, so Dr. Johnson, I, yeah. just a quick uh, follow-up. 
question and maybe clarification. You don't have to give any specifics on what you guys do at BCM or other programs, but the prevailing was wisdom is that each program, because they're getting so many applications, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen colleagues or I've heard colleagues that apply to all 112, 115 programs. Um, I know some folks that apply to the 20 to 30 and there's this kind of mean of around 50 to 70 or so, mm-hmm. um, generally speaking. Um, and so in a way, you know, the why step one is important is because it's kind of a filter and that's the prevailing wisdom. And uh, is that colloquially fair to say in general as a way to filter out applicants um, in order to just get down to a manageable number to invite to interview? I think that's true in broad terms, right? Like if you make a 210 on step one and someone else makes a 270, the 270 is going to be more competitive. Um, And then there becomes like a range that's acceptable, I think. And that varies a little bit by program, um, you know, with the very, very competitive programs, you kind of need to have a, a higher floor, so to speak. The, the, right. the, you just can't be as low as you can in another program, which isn't as competitive on your step one score. And which is a bit so of I, a do think it's, I think it's kind of like you, it's not the only determinant. Um, and I don't think, I'm not a program director, but I don't think there's like a draconian cutoff in most programs, but they do look at it. And I think if you're way far an outlier, um, Mm -hmm. then you're unlikely. It's just, it's just one of the major metrics people use and you're less likely Mm -hmm. to get an interview. Yeah. That's just a clarification. Thanks. No, yeah, of course. Um, And then some of the other things, I won't go through all these things, but the research turns out to be very important. uh, And we'll go through a little bit more detail later. Um, But the, for example, the mean number of abstracts, presentations and publications, um, for U.S. seniors in 2020 um, that for people that matched was 23.4 and the people that did not match was 11.8. So another another one that's just showing us that that's even more so maybe in the step one because they're step, I think the people that end up matching have all have pretty good step one scores. The, um, and even the ones that get multiple interviews um, it seems to be the research really seems to be a differentiator these days um, in the more recent matching data. Um, and then like AOA member percentage. So 39% who matched versus 19% who didn't. People who um, graduated from the top 40 U.S. medical school with highest NIH funding, 40% who matched were uh, from one of those schools versus 27% who um, were in those schools who didn't match. So um, PhD degree doesn't seem to matter as much, et cetera. So we'll focus in a little bit on some of those ones that do seem to match um, and, uh, and go from there. Any other thoughts on some of that preliminary discussion? No, I mean, I think it's worth highlighting some of the limitations of that right there. I mean, we don't, like you said, it, you have to use your eye to say, oh, the 248 in the match group versus the 241, they seem similar, but... You can't really make, you know, you can't make any um, scientific statements about what those numbers really mean. You know, you can't say um, that people with a certain board score are 
statistically significantly more important or more likely to match based on that data specifically. Right. Um, there are, there are some publications out there that have tried to do this, but they're limited in scope because they have to either use <clears throat> surveys, which have their own right. limitations and biases, or they use the, the national residency matching program data um, and are only able to do typically univariate studies and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So obviously limited. Um, but what we do have in, in, in the literature, um, there's, there's one study um, done by Leschke uh, and Hunt in, from the University of Minnesota. Um, and they looked at data from 2009 to 2016. So it's a little dated, mm -hmm. but they, I mean, they found that there was a statistical significant, um, there's a significant difference between matched and unmatched um, candidates for U.S. seniors um, for students who had, uh, based on SEP1 scores, research projects, AOA status, and top 40 NIH funding, which right. by itself, it's hard to know if that's because of the research you know, the NIH funding, if that's research right. or if that's prestige, it's kind of hard to, to delineate those two things. And then things, and then there's other things that the NRMP gathers data on like work experiences and volunteer experiences. And those don't typically have a, uh, a significant role. Now, another limitation of that data is that it's only using, it's just using categorical quantified data. We're not getting into the nitty gritty of what those, um, research projects are the way that the the way that ERAS does it is they just they count all of your abstracts presentations and publications yeah and that's that's the 23.4 figure so that could be you know 23.4 abstracts and nothing ever got peer-reviewed and published or that right. could mean 23.4 peer-reviewed publications in the red and white journals you know it's kind of hard to know um and that's similar for volunteer and work experiences um you know if someone started their own nonprofit and it's on a national scale. And that was just the one thing they did. Um, you know, in general, you would see that as more impactful than doing 20 volunteer experiences through college and medical school. Um, but so that, that data can be skewed. So that, those are some, those, those are definitely some limitations of, of the NRMP data specifically. And I think that's where um, things like the board scores, the numbers of uh, what I call APPs, those abstracts, presentations and publications, mm -hmm. Those things we just you you try to just hit a certain number, just because that's all you can do. You I mean you try to make it as high quality as possible, but right. those are the things you can quantify um, and are somewhat of a um, uh, equalizer in, in some ways. So that that was just something I wanted to follow up on, um, and uh, I think it is also interesting that uh, in 2020, over the last five years, at least over the last five years. Um, it saw one of the most competitive matches. Um, you know, you had, you had noted that 74% yeah. figure, um, you know, in, you know, several years ago it was in the eighties and nineties, you know, obviously we can't say anything about trends, but, um, there's also more people applying and, you know, you wonder how many of those are reapplicants going mm -hmm. through the cycle again. Um, and maybe they have, uh, have done research years. And so maybe that skews the data as well. So th there are a lot of factors in, that we cannot <laughs> make any kind of um, recommendation on certainly, and, and even um, be able to predict with any certainty that certain, you know, uh, some of these factors are playing more of an outsized role, um, uh, at least anecdotally.
Right. Um, that, that, that's a lot of times what we have to go back to. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of this we'll, we'll talk about, I'll, we'll try and give you like just an overview of some of the things we do know statistically yep. that make you competitive. And then we'll go back yep. and I think it's fair at the end to like editorialize what all this means um, yep. when you're sitting in the room ranking people. And so I'll, I'll just say that the next thing I was going to mention here is the number of interviews that you have. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that number of contiguous ranks and the people that it matched, it was around 15. So they have some curves and you just have to go, if those are interested, to, to the NMRMP site, which I think there's links to it on the neurosurgerymatch.org. We may have be able to put it into the show notes here. If you have, let's, let's say the cutoff at five interviews, you have like roughly a 40% chance of matching. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have 16 interviews, it's closer to 90%. Like, so I think that's that, that gives you just a general idea about what getting certain number of interviews means. Uh, so, I mean, you can see how these curves kind of work. I mean, and the people that are up in the 270s are nearly 100%. Right. Um, and we talked about research being important. Again, this is just the data that we have. So we just have to go through what we have. It's not, like you say, it's not all encompassing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there's no question a differentiation between people who matched that had higher numbers of abstracts um, and presentations and publications versus those that did not. I mean, that's, a, that's an extremely strong trend. Um, like we mentioned before, like double the number of um, these things on your application compared to for those that matched versus didn't match. Mm-hmm. Um, some things that didn't seem to matter that much was research positions um, or research experiences, they call it. So people that matched had 6.1 um, and those that did not 5.2. Um, so not much of a difference there. It would seem just by the eyeball test. Um, other things, volunteer. I think that's something that's very good to have on your on your resume that you are someone who has that in them because we're all our physicians and want to be compassionate and volunteer and help people. Um, but it doesn't seem to have a major impact on the match status. Um, number of volunteer experiences for those that match was 7.8 unmatched 7.2. Other thing, work experiences. I'm not exactly sure what that means, honestly, um, but 3.6 for the people that matched and 4.0 for the people that didn't match. Um, so not a big deal. Um, OA, AOA membership, as we mentioned, seems to be important. They looked at whether you have a PhD degree seems to matter or not, and it's it's actually doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> Um, right. Like 9.5 people that matched had a PhD and 10.9 that didn't match had a PhD. Um, other advanced degrees, similar washout effect, 24% um, did and 20 of the people that did match had an advanced degree and 29% of the people that didn't match had an advanced degree. So it doesn't seem to be highly correlating to match success to have advanced degrees based on these numbers um, from this past year, at least. Yeah, so that's that's really good. Um, and it also should be said that this is for USMD seniors only. So we, we're yes, not including US seniors only, correct? Yes, we're not including IMGs or or uh, uh, DO applicants. But and maybe we can talk about that briefly at the end. Uh, yeah. Some things that might typically the numbers are so much lower just in terms of raw numbers that it's right. a little bit harder even to make some determinations. But maybe we can say those later. But so there, um, yeah, I was going to bring up one other study before you hop hop in. Um, yeah, go ahead. But I want to summarize, like you said, there's people that have tried to aggregate this data and make statistical predictions or, or who would match or who wouldn't match or see if what's statistically significant. So there's a Dasani paper um, that took all this data from nurse, the, the journal Neurosurgery 2018. 
um, and, and tried to make statistical significance out of it. So their study period was 2009 to 17, and they found statistical significance, the number of continuous ranks, um, which we talked about, people that match usually around 15 over that entire period, not just the one year. The step one score, um, the people that matched 242, those that did match 228 during that time period, that was significant. Uh, step two score was near significance at 0.06, but was not. Um, things that didn't matter in their study, interestingly enough, that does not seem to be the trend currently, was number of abstracts, publications, and presentations over that entire period, 2009 to 2017. It was 10.1 for people that matched versus 6.6 .6 for those that did not match. However, this seems to be changing with time. Um, the AOA status did, did seem to come out significant, 28.6% of the people that matched had AOA versus 7.8% of the people that were unmatched. So if you have that, it seems to pretend a higher chance, you know, uh, a better, better chance at matching. Um, the NIH funded school, coming from NIH funded school, they found to be statistically significantly important. And again, like we talked about, um, it held true for this entire study period. Um, the percentage of students who had a combined MD, PhD did not seem to matter uh, or pretend a particular um, improved chance at matching. And, um, and that, and that all seems to go along with roughly what we've seen with the exception of the research um, mean presentations, abstract publications becoming more important, it seems, by looking at the more recent data. Yeah, and I can expand on that a little bit. So mm -hmm. there's a publication by Harsh Wadwa in the Journal of Nurse Surgery in, um, I don't remember what year it was published, 2019. Um, and they, so they looked at all the years that charting outcomes in the match data was available from 2009 to 2018. Mm -hmm. And they looked at uh, both publication volume and um, uh, quality or, or um, uh, status uh, for all neurosurgery interns that the data was available. And so they found that folks who, uh, they found that for those interns in those given years, neurosurgery specific publications per intern was about four. Um, those with, and then they break it down further. And then first and last author publications was about two. Um, neurosurgical first author, neurosurgical specific first last author publications was one and a half. And then basic science and clinical research um, fit in to the rest of that. Um, they found that mean publication numbers among interns at top 40 programs based on NIH funding was significantly higher than those of all of the, um, for other programs. So that kind of mm -hmm. shows that there's a confounder there for the NRMP data. Right. Um, and then, uh, um, obviously those with PhD degrees typically produce more, um, research. Um, but it doesn't, as we say, we don't know for sure what that impact is on the match itself. Um, so they didn't necessarily look at people who matched versus didn't match, um, but it does inform a little bit about uh, what what your research output um, may want to look like based on uh, you know the PGY1 uh, research output up to that point. So um, it kind of helps inform that as well and gives a little more structure to what that number means. So, you know, in 2018, it was 18.3 research products. What does that mean? Um, about 25% of that is peer reviewed publications and, and then broken down, you know, by quality and it's hard to know, but um, so that, that's something that, that could be valuable. Um, yeah, just like not quantifiable, but generally speaking, and this probably goes without saying, but when you as someone who's evaluating 
a possible resident, someone who you're interviewing for residency position, uh, I think almost everyone takes peer review publications as the most impressive of the research experiences, you know, followed by, I suppose, book chapters, followed by abstracts or something like that. Um, right. Uh, presentations and abstracts, but yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, having, you know, one or two first author publications in anything is really good. It shows, you know, the process and all that's that sort of thing. And you can apply those same skills to uh, research in neurosurgery. It also just shows that you're interested in neurosurgery, you know, agree. doing research in neurosurgery and those shows you have a dedication to it, um, which is also why you do sub eyes and get letters of recommendation and all these things. Um, so, but if you have research, um, first author, you know, having one or two of those, uh, as well as other research output, um, you know, based on other things, uh, that's really good for your application. And, um, it's hard to know, like, you know, are, you know, how many are actually, um, you know, what's the floor for, for that. And I think the NRMP data does show us a little bit about that. And another thing that these, these, uh, charting outcomes in the match publications do is they break down some of these factors by, um, you know, the numbers of match and unmatched applicants for uh, each each level. So uh, to explain that a little bit better. So like for step one, they break it down for how many candidates match and don't match um, for step one based on um, ten, groups of 10. So um, from for, for those who had a 260 or above, they 22 matched and two didn't. Uh, for 251 and above, or 251 to 260, it's 65 and 12. And, and so I'm, I'm not going to repeat all those, but so it does help you show a little, you know, it's hard to know like what the normal distribution where that's kind of centering around. Right. And so sometimes we, we hear 240 and it's like, oh, if you don't have a 240, there's no point in applying. Well, you know, about, about 60% of folks who applied with a 231 to 240, uh, really 221 to 240, um, those those applicants were matching. Um, obviously, your chances are lower, and, and you alluded to that earlier. But uh, it, it's not you know hope isn't lost. Um, and the same thing is kind of true for the research output. But you know they only go from those with zero uh, research output research products to five or more. And if you look at the, the 2020 data, there's only four people that had no research output, and two of them matched. There's like 10 people with one to four and then all the rest, you know, the other 200 or so had five or more. So it's really, you know, that doesn't really tell you what the floor is in terms of, you know, how, how well your chances improve based on what that number, how that numbers increases. So um, definitely, definitely, uh, definitely some conclusions you can softly make um, uh, based on the data that we have. Um Another, I alluded to this earlier, um, the program director survey also tries to, you know, it, it tries to gather more pragmatic information from the program director themselves, program directors themselves. Right. Things like professionalism, interactions with residents and faculty uh, on a rotation or on an interview, um, staff, you know, if you're, you're being rude to um, staff that are helping you with the interview process that, you know, obviously will affect poorly on you. Um, NRMP match violations, actually things that, you know, if you are violating communication protocols or um, just accidentally do something wrong with the, the ERAS system, that's a big no, no and a big red flag. Um, and so some of these things are, are a lot of these things actually, I would say are pretty uh, uh, common sense, but um, 
and it's hard to, but it's trying to quantify some of those things that are hard to quantify, like professionalism and ethics and hard work and just some of the qualities that make a good human being, <laughs> not necessarily a, a good doctor, just a good, a good doctor. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I, I, I always go back to what, um, uh, Chris Graffio said he, he wants to make a teachability metric, a teachability score. And right. that's what he would use um, to, to evaluate all the applicants. And I think it's brilliant because I mean, um, being able to uh, judge these candidates based on things that are really going to matter when you're in the trenches, um, you know, my ability to answer a multi multiple choice question um, for a stroke alert is, you know, th that only gets you so far. Um, right. you know, and being up for 24 hours and that sort of thing. Um, those are the qualities that you're, I would assume you guys are looking for. Um, but, uh, it's hard, it's hard to quantify. Yeah. I um, think, I think you're, you're dead on. And, uh, so that's where these data are really become limited, which is, um, which is, I think what we use this data for in large part is to separate a whole bunch of people who are really good. Right. you know, because you have to somehow. Right. So, so what happens is that you have a tremendously talented group of students who are interested in neurosurgery. Um, and there's on paper, it's impossible to pick people that are becoming great neurosurgeons. I mean, it's really hard. So what the field has evolved into doing, in addition to these metrics of scores and research, is trying to find ways to quantify someone's um grit, dedication to the field, likability. You have to work with them like, you know, brothers and sisters and, you know, fathers and <laughs> uncles, right. et cetera, in a nursery, small nursery program for the next seven years. Um, uh, you know, certain programs emphasize different things. So they're looking for slightly different types of candidates. Some are really, really interested in melding the next group of leaders in neurosurgery and as clinical si clinician scientists and um, innovators and you know, leaders in the field. And those types of programs look for different qualities slightly, but all have kind of similar qualities of having good human beings who are smart and take good care of patients and are good mm -hmm. neurosurgeons. But they just look for slightly different things than, than a slightly more community uh, focused program. And so that's why there's a spectrum of people that have different research backgrounds, different board score floors and ceilings, program to program actually. Um, so, so that's one, one issue that you have to kind of always keep in mind is that there's actually a spectrum of different types of programs that people apply to. So when you interview, you actually look for fit, um, both personality, hardworking, all these things, but also fit like within, does this place that I'm gonna match at get me where I wanna go with my career? And the program that is interested in, you know, putting out strong clinical neurosurgeons um, doesn't necessarily want the MD, PhD um, with, they'd love to have them, but they don't have, may not have the resources to support that person at their institution who wants to get NIH funding as, you know, right, right out of, right out of uh, training. So, so there's a spectrum of programs. Secondly, what the neurosurgery field has tried to do by setting up these away rotations and interviews, et cetera, is really sub-select for these characteristics that can't be put on paper. Hard work, grit, um, likability, teachability. Um, so we put you, so for those who aren't aware, we've had another podcast episode about 
um, how to go about the sub-internship process and the interview process. So I won't belabor that, but you can go back and listen to the one with Chris Grafeo and Joseph Lindsay about that and it is deeply explored. But that's the intangibles that um, people are looking for in addition to these baseline metrics that kind of everybody needs to get to this group of people that have like some reasonable semblance of excellent qualifications. And then you need to separate out people who are gonna be good neurosurgeons, good doctors, good residents, who seems like they're interested in neurosurgery enough to stick it out through the good and the bad. And that really comes down to just loving it. So like we talked about, um, you gotta go in these rotations, way rotations and do well. And there's a whole talk we give on that. Um, you have to stay up 24 hours a night with the residents and make sure you're still interested in the field after you do that for three months on away rotations. Um, you have to be a likable person that can you know, work day and night with this group of people and both sides need to like each other. Um, you, you, um, you know, despite being tired, need to not get jaded and angry and miserable and, and want to do something else because this is a long time you have to do this kind of work, including when you're in attending and you get woken up in the middle of the night to go take care of patients and you have clinic the next day or, or whatever, surgery the next day. Um, so this is the, the, the way the field has evolved. So after you go through these sub-internships, you need to get letters. And those letters then go into your application and says that, yes, this person did very well. They're a competent clinical um, student for their level. Um, they're interested, they read, they know what they're doing, they're safe, uh, they're affable. And I think they would make a good neurosurgeon. And so that's a secondary filter for the programs to make sure that they subselect good people for the field. But also it puts the medical student who has never been a neurosurgeon before through a three month simulation of what neurosurgery residency would be like at a junior level to make sure they're interested in it. And so that's where we end up coming through, coming up with the system. And then you go through the whole next level, which is interviews, um, which is all, again, really not quantified how someone performs in an interview, just like the sub-internship other than the letter. But that's just all internal, you know, in any given department, in any given day, a given applicant may do better or worse based on their fit with the different personalities. None of this is really particularly quantifiable. We all try and like, you know, quantify these, you know, like little one, two, three, four, five grade or, you know, different places do it different ways. It's really, really hard. It's very subjective. But at the end, you come up with a, a list for each program of people that you like based on some mixture of these grades that the faculty that write input from the residents for people that have rotated there or what happened on the, you know, the dinner before the, <laughs> before the interview. If anything scandalous were to happen, you know, that's notable. Um, and you kind of try and come up with the best fit for both people. So there, there's a whole very important non-quantifiable in these statistics um, set of data that happens that helps pretend people to match. But what I think what you should do with this data is know where you need to get to be competitive, to get into that grouping of people that do match typically. And then you just have to be a good, strong, hardworking person that gets along and doesn't think that they're, you know, the best thing since uh, Elon Musk or something like that uh, right. uh, on our, on your interviews and your sub internships that everybody just rolls their eyes at um, and you're not right. dangerous and you know, you're reasonable, et cetera. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a really good point. I think, uh, you know, this can really be in, put into two different stages. And the first is just building an application that gets you in front of 
residents and program directors on an interview. And then relying on your personality and your work ethic and the, the, you know, who you are as a person, your hobbies, all, you know, all these things that are, you know, like we said, it, there's not, there's nothing scientific necessarily about them, but they make who, who you are, you know, um, you know, it's, you could talk about um, your spine research, the entire interview. Um, but uh, it's also just as interesting to talk about the fact that you play the guitar or that you like to go hiking and things like that, that make you an actual, you know, makes you an actual person and that you're going to be enjoyable to work with. And it, you show your hard work in other ways besides just, you know, sitting down and, and trying to become a good applicant. Um, and then once you have that interview showing, hoping that it goes well and that sort of thing. Um, so in terms of those academic factors that get you the, to the, get you to the interview um, based on the neurosurgery match website and the data that we've talked about um, just to summarize, I think it'd be good to kind of go through some of those things and just say, you know, in general, these are the metrics that would be good for you to get to the interview. After that, there's not really, I mean, you can coach yourself and work and do mock interviews and that sort of thing, but you know, it's less of a, you know, a to B process. And so if, in terms of step one, you know, a 240 or above in general is good. And most programs will take a look at you. Um, similar for step two, maybe a little bit higher as those scores right. skew higher. Um, uh, in terms of research, you know, the based on the NRP stuff, like we said, you can't delineate too much what those look like, but, you know, having 10 to 20 good research products and, you know, having anywhere from one to three or four, you know, kind of in that one to five range um, of peer reviewed publications that you can talk about in an interview and it shows that you're passionate about and maybe sets a foundation for something you'd want to do in residency and, and during your research year, um, during your, you know, fifth year that you were talking about earlier. Um, you know, having, you know, doing, getting AOA status, um, which we didn't talk about a whole lot, but kind of is depending on the institution and, and it's a national honor society, Alpha Omega Alpha um, is a uh, kind of combination of your academic performance and your board scores and your scholarly output and that sort of thing. And um, so that's obviously a great way to, to shine. Um, it should be noted that uh, I I'm pretty sure international and uh, uh, DO applicants can't do AOA. So um, right you know, have to maybe try to figure out uh, other ways to um, you know, honor societies and that sort of thing. Um, other honor societies, you know, gold humanism. Um, there's some, you know, like grants and awards that you can win through the AANS and CNS. There's ways to get involved as a medical student in these organizations, go to conferences, that sort of thing. Um, you know, being from a, going to a medical, you know, this is trying maybe a little bit difficult to plan this far ahead, but if you were sure you want to do nursery and undergrad going to a school that has a home program and has some of these uh, uh, resources that will foster you through the process and maybe get you involved with research and mentorship uh, early in the early in the process and then doing those sub eyes and, and away rotations um, that will uh, spawn some letters of recommendation that can speak to your clinical and uh, clinical uh, performance and uh, work experience uh, work ethic maybe we can talk about another in another episode, um, right. best way to really get those letters of recommendation and maybe who you should get those from and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, that, that's kind of a general overview uh, for, for IMGs, you know, uh, just to kind of 
maybe con contrast and compare a little bit about what it looks like. We talked about this a little bit with Greg and, and Panos in a recent episode. Um, but in general, the scores are fairly similar. Um, what's really interesting, what's really typically different is the research output. And that's can be because uh, maybe programs don't necessarily consider them for interviews as, as often, or um, there's not as, ma- as many applicants. And so they feel like they need to buff up their application with research or uh, as Greg and Panos talked about, you just, you have to graduate. And so you spend that year doing research and uh, publish, publishing and, and that sort of thing. So that's why typically IMGs have higher research output than USMD seniors. And then uh, for DO applicants, I mean, uh, we talked about this a little bit with Monica Mira but, uh, several months ago, but the numbers are so small that it's really hard to say. But um, for 2020, uh, only two uh, matched and 12 didn't. So it's kind of hard to say uh, really what's a good score, but um, the, diff- the, the step one is in the 250 range and step two or, and, and for matched and uh, unmatched is 225. Um, and then there's, there seems to be a difference in terms of research as well. So the trends are similar, um, but the experiences might be different based on uh, what resources at your school or in your uh, particular country um, even. So maybe the, maybe the two last things that, to talk about um, so Dr. Johnson, we've alluded to this in other episodes, but let's say you have maybe a poor board score or your grades aren't great or um, something that might be a quote unquote red flag. Uh, you know, as someone who would evaluate a candidate um, and, and knows what it takes to be a neurosurgeon, knows what it takes to be a successful resident, what might someone do uh, as a, to strategize uh, making up for that? Some of them might be more obvious, like doing sub eyes at the institution they really want or taking years off. I mean, what are some things that you think are really uh, are ways that students can maybe, or uh, just candidates in general can strategize uh, making up for maybe a, a blip on their application? Right. That's a great question, actually. Um, so I think there's a number of ways. Generally speaking, I think that neurosurgery uh, tries to be forgiving um, and you know, take talented people and allow them to grow um, and, and learn from, from, you know, within some reason, you know, mistakes that you would have made or inadequacies that in your application, right? Um, you just have to realize it's a, it's a spectrum of really qualified people um, that are out there. So some of the things you can do to make yourself look better. I mean, I think the number one thing in a small field like neurosurgery is that relationships really matter a lot. Um, so if you're, so fortunate to be a medical student at a place with a home program, the better you know those people and they know you longitudinally over time, you know, the more you can make up for that kind of thing because you have someone that can vouch for you and say, yeah, they didn't do this, um, but they're really outstanding in many other ways, you know? Um, so I think that's number one. Number two, getting to know people at other programs, you know, spending time at other programs, if you can, if you have that luxury, both your sub eyes or, or in some other capacity, research, um, experiences, et cetera. I, I just think the more people you know in neurosurgery, the more people can speak up for you with via letters or phone calls, the better off you're going to be. Um, research is obviously very good. You know, people that have 10, 12, 15 publications and they haven't done a PhD where you know that they've had three to five extra years to write, 
compared to your average medical students, um, looks very, very good. I think there's no question about it. Uh, people really respect that. That's hard. Um, you know, writing papers, particularly at medical student level, um, and finding the time and the dedication. And then anything else you do that's just exceptional. I, I do think that the field likes a lot of backgrounds, like bioengineering backgrounds. Um, you know, uh, like if you went to Juilliard School of Music, uh, you know, I mean, that's, an, that's a real accomplishment. I mean, it shows that you're a dedicated person and, you, and you you're very serious um, about developing talent and skill and, and, and discipline. So I think there's a lot of different ways. For instance, I, I, I didn't go to a top 40 NIH funded medical school. I, um, I didn't know I was gonna do nurse surgery until very, very late. And um, I think some of the, but I, I was very active. Like I actually did a big, uh, found it, helped found a big public service program in my community and got a grant, a national grant to support it along with a couple of my other medical students in my class. And it wasn't neurosurgery related, but you know, I got like many thousand dollars in grant funding and set up, you know, this, this nice thing. And I mean, I think, I think that was respected. So it doesn't have to cool. just be things on this, on this list. You know, I think there's yeah. a fair interest in some varied experiences and backgrounds. And I think the neurosurgeons respect a lot of different things that are notable on your resume, not just papers, not just, you know, PhDs or, or what it may, whatever it may be, AOA. But those things are good to have because they're easy to quantify. But, uh, but just being an exceptional person that's motivated, that wants to do, go above and beyond, I think is, I think is all of those things show up in, in your individual um, application. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's a ceiling for these folks, but uh, trying to maximize, you know, if you have a 70% chance based on whatever that blip was on your application, doing whatever you can to get it to that 70%. And then we can do another episode on, you know, what, uh, applicants can do, uh, in terms of backup plans and, mm -hmm. um, reapplying I think, you know, maybe we can yeah. have that discussion another time. That'd be good too. Um, cause it's pretty common. I mean, 70, 70 U S seniors didn't apply, uh, didn't match last year. Right. Um, it'd be interesting to know what they're all doing. Agreed. And maybe we can have a, I don't know if you want to just discuss the step one pass fail. Just if we want to talk about it another time, I think would be more interesting to me, at least at this point is what do all of these things tell you about, your colleagues that you practice with? How do you see things in the residency application process that translates to the magnificent people that you work with and translates into amazing patient care? And if there are gaps there, if, there, if it's kind of a black box, if you think it's more about, um, I mean, obviously it's getting to residency and then residency to where you're at. Um, and so you can inform that this uh, based on the residency you work with as well. But um, if there are gaps in that process, how do you think that the, the application um, system could maybe be improved? Um, just maybe brainstorming ways that maybe 10, 15 years from now, obviously these things work at a dinosaur pace. Um, maybe 10 years from now, there's a, a change. And maybe it's burned by COVID or, or something else um, that you think might be valuable uh, to evaluating candidates more effectively or, or maybe or more equitably or whatever, whatever uh, adjective you want to use? Yeah, it was a really interesting question. You know, I have to qualify my answer in the fact that I'm actually not a program director. So maybe some right. that in that level, in that situation or in that, but position. even just clinical practice, you know, but, people but generally speaking, with. what I would say is that, is that you get the, 
on people that are sub-interns, you generally have a pretty good sense if you're one of the residents that works with them. So a lot of people that actually end up making the final decisions don't work with them all that much of sub-intern. Um, but if you work with that person, particularly if they're in your home institution over several years, you get a very good sense for them, generally speaking, and how they're going to be as a resident. And it's all these intangible things and not, not the things on the paper, right? So we've talked about this a little bit before, but like the number one thing that a high step one score predicts is a high score on step one of your written neurosurgery boards. Not really much else that anyone's able to sort out what that predicts. Um, it, seems, it means that you can sit down, focus and study for an exam. And yes, in neurosurgery, you have to absorb an incredible amount of didactic information and interpret it and turn it into patient care decisions. So it's important. Um, but it doesn't seem to have much of an impact beyond that that anyone can quantify. So it doesn't make a better neurosurgeon to make a 275 on your step one, uh, et cetera. Especially if you're if the cutoff is a 240 and you're looking at a 235 and a 245. I think that's right. where right. it's like, oh, well, how could you ever say, you know, yeah. Right. So you but really want to find these, these, you know, grit, teachability, being a good human being that cares about patients and not about themselves or some other metric that they're shooting to make them a name for themselves. And they want to take good care of patients and they want to, you know, all do other things that we all try to do, push the field forward, do research, um, et cetera. But you really have to have the care for the patient and the patient's is first you know, of your first in your mind um, when you're going through um, these rotations and just being a good doctor and smart and perceptive and think ahead and problem solve, be teachable, be affable. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, it's like all these, it, it, these things seem to me to be the most important predictors of good residents. Like you just know it when you see it. And these metrics are important because it tells you that the person's serious, smart, focused on academics focused on studying that, that you need to do to make it through the process and be smart at the end and, and, and make good decisions for patients. Um, but, but it, it, in my mind, it's a, you just almost have to see it yourself to know it. And that's why the letters mm -hmm. and internships I think are so critically important um, is that it, it kind of like allows the neurosurgery community to evaluate that person from many different angles with different opinions. And, and if they all come to the same conclusion that they're very good then they'll do great usually. So as a follow-up question to that, um, there's a, a survey that was sent out by Nicholas Field and published in World Neurosurgery, I think, in January of this year. And they received 53 responses of 113 program directors um, and asked them about a standard letter of recommendation that tries to objectify some of these qualities that you're talking about. And I know they do it um, pretty it's been well-established for emergency medicine with the slow. Do you think that's something that's in the near future in neurosurgery application, or do you think it's more of a, a, a better idea than it is a actual and in, in actually in practice? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I do think it is worth an attempt at that hmm. personally. And the reason why I think that is because you see letters from every different shape, form, or fashion of faculty in the country. And they vary so greatly in what each person means by a particular phrase or superlative or a lack of superlative can be different. And you get a general sense reading these letters, but they're, they're not by any means comprehensive or 
foolproof um, to kind of read the tea leaves about some of the things, what they mean in certain phrases. So I think it's worth a try. I, I don't know enough about it to say whether it'll be successful in making the field a lot better or worse. <laughs> but, but I think in general, the, the trying to make objective measures out of subjective things is helpful um, as best you can to be fair to the students. Um, that's just, I just don't know how successful true. it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, right. Yeah, who knows exactly? And who knows exactly where, what those uh, measures would be, um, and and who would be doing it? Is it the residents? You know, are you, are you getting these evaluations from the residents who are working with them constantly, sub eyes or whatever, or is it the attendings? But I, yeah, I think it would likely be important for two, you know, for COVID because of COVID, all the challenges we've realized because of that, um, as well as the, the past one step fail, uh, step one pass fail thing. And I, obviously the answer is we don't know, uh, but based on your conversations in the YNC webinar series, I didn't know if you wanted to just give a minute to of airtime to what you think that change in January of 2022 and step one goes pass fail, what that might look like. Yeah, so very soon, step one will be pass-fail, and there's a variety of reasons for that. And one of them being the observation by people that try to teach medical students that students don't seem to care about anything except studying for step one in their first few years of medical school. And there's a concern that they're really not learning medicine broadly or what they people in medical schools want to teach medical students. Um, but they're really, really focusing in on gaming step one, you know, for obvious reasons, it's, a, it's an extremely important determinant of which fields you can enter <laughs> your scores. So that's some of the background, as I understand it, about why this is happening. And, and then it has a secondary sort of effect on the downstream programs who have previously been kind of leaning on it to, as you say, like find a group of people in a certain, you know, range of USMLE scores that traditionally match in a, pro, in a different subspecialty. So, you know, if you want to become quote unquote competitive for dermatology or neurosurgery or ENT, you need to be in XYZ range of score. So that's just been a, it's just been a standard way that it's worked. And that's why the students have been gaming that system to do as well as they can. So there's this like a recognition that maybe that's not so healthy. Um, and like we talked about, maybe step one scores, um, are not the best determinant of who's going to be an excellent doctor or you know the next leader in your field, um, and so so they made this decision, uh, and all the different governing bodies. Um, I don't have them off the top of my head, but there's a bunch of all the ones that are in charge of medical education for for medicine um, have decided this. So now all the, the groups like neurosurgery have to adapt to this change. What is it going to mean? Um, so there's a lot of speculation about what it's going to mean. Uh, I just I just got an email today from our medical school from a five-part webinar discussing what this is going to mean um, uh, for the future. Uh, so that maybe you can ask me this question again after I've watched six hours of webinar on it. Sounds uh, like riveting stuff. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but in general, there's a variety of ways people are kind of thinking this will go. One is that um, step two will be the new step one um, with people similarly gaming it. I would make the argument that that's not all bad because at least step two is skills that are more clinically oriented, which is where people spend 
their careers in mm-hmm. clinicians rather than Krebs cycle and basic science, which you know has its own virtues, no question. But um, but you know it is information you will end up using on a day to day basis more likely. Um, step two information than step one. Other things that will come to buy is like research will be more emphasized. Um, you know, other intangibles will be become more emphasized and. Uh, you know, like we talked about, the letters, the sub-I's, et cetera. Um, there's been speculation that this will hurt people without home programs that don't have as good access to mentors for research, who don't have as good access to these letters and people that can write strong letters for them um, because the board score kind of put them on par with everyone else in the country if you had an outstanding board score. And that's a that's a fair concern. Um, um, so they, Keith Hawk, actually, from our previous in one of our previous conversations, he and a group, uh, his colleagues at Johns Hopkins, they published uh, survey data um, in JNS this year um, from program directors asking this question about what they think, um, you know, which groups will be hurt or uh, uh, helped by that change. And just as you describe, it sounds like um, a good number of program directors think that students from either less prestigious or uh, program or schools with uh, less resources may be disproportionately affected, but obviously remains to be seen. Um, so we'll see. Right. So this is some of the issues I see them. I don't know if anyone really knows for sure. Yeah. But I do think that if it, I do think if it pivots people away from obsessing about this one score to then, I think it's a little bit unfair to say that one test score determines what specialty you would be best suited for, you right. know, <laughs> like that seems right. a little bit extreme to me. Right. So I, I don't, I don't think that is all bad, um, but it'll be, it is currently unknown in my mind how things will re-equalize re- re- after, after this all sorts out. Yeah. And I, I think that highlights kind of the conclusion of the, the episode, which is a lot of this is common sense, um, really leave no relationship and no stone unturned in terms of trying to, improve your application and um, typically earlier is the better and uh, don't be afraid to ask for help and that sort of thing, Um, especially if you're in a disadvantaged position and uh, do whatever you possibly can if this is what you want to do to figure out that this is what you want to do. I think in a lot of ways, um, because it's really hard to. So did you have anything to add? I think there's been a really, as always, we get so deep into this way more than I ever think we would, but is there anything else that you'd want to no, I think uh, the, underlying, the underlying current of matching neurosurgery is just loving neurosurgery. Right. You know? And yeah. I think I think that's like what really is the uh, the base of all the stuff you stack up, right? All right. your CV and all the everything is like people pick up on the fact that you just like are obsessed with neurosurgery and right. you just want to do it all the time. You want to read about it, you know, and be like, smart on rounds. You know, uh, you want to write about it. You want right. to read the books about the different surgical approaches and be up on your, you know, up on your surgery the night before mm-hmm. when you go into the OR as a student. I mean, people like absorb that, you know, either explicitly or implicitly. And that's how these sub-internships and letters of recommendation and all these things come about, um, you know, and, and so, but that's just the sense of not only joy, but dedication um, right. to it that people want to pick up. Uh, and then you have basic skills, of course. And, you're, you're right. good. Um, right. So, but I think that's what people really want to know. Um, and, and where you filter out your personality and your kind of career goals, 
it'll you'll sort it out between which programs are a good fit for you and these types of things. But you have to work really, really hard to show that you're a strong, hardworking, very smart top of your class will be, you know, a Navy SEAL of medicine neurosurgeon. Um, and if you get to the level that we, some of these metrics we talked about and your joy and your dedication, your competence and your, you know, teachability and grit all come through, then you'll match. You know? Yeah. What's the story you're trying to tell? I think that's yeah. exactly what you're trying to say. It's good. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much. This has been insightful and I think it's going to help a lot of people pragmatically. So thanks for Well, I hope, I hope it's helpful. I, uh, and, and like I said, I just wanted to say that we're limited on our data that we can provide. Right. But, but I do think that this data that we talked about is, the, is what you need to target as you're preparing. And, and if you're wondering whether you're a competitive match or not, it would help you. Um, and then once you get into this group of people that not only have all these metrics met, but then are good performers in clinical rotations and, and you know, come across as decent human beings people would want to work with <laughs> in interviews, right. um, then, then, then you have a very good chance of matching. All right, Dr. Johnson. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great talk. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes, or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day, and we look forward to next time.